was a very spontaneous quartet of trumpeters outside Buckingham Palace two days ago. Hello, it's Chappie, and it's Keep Calm in Cauliflower Cheese, episode 222. And uh, we have another edition of Elizabeth the Great, part two. We had the first edition. Uh, it was on the day after Queen Victoria II died on Friday. And while it's a solemn reflection, we tried to give a more light-hearted look at the Queen, her sort of tongue-in-cheek approach, and how approachable she was to everybody. And I'm sure many of you are feeling very, very sad. And uh, hopefully this podcast is a little bit of solace for you over the course of the coming weeks. But just because we're somber and we also have great sadness, there is a certain beauty and reflection and melancholy. And I hope to give you a little overview of that today as we continue our tribute to Queen Elizabeth II, the longest serving monarch, 70 years. None of us can remember what it was like before the Queen. I talked to my grandmother the other day and she remembers the death of the King in 1953. But there's very few of us now that can remember that. Queen Elizabeth actually was one of the last people who was in uniform and had some active role during World War II. It is left with us. That is the span of history, the span of time that she has had as a constant stay for us all. Tradition, loyalty, duty, and everything servers done with a smile and with humor and with warmth and with empathy. For any sports fans amongst you, and the Queen was never a huge fan of cricket. She attended Lords and met the England teams over the years, but when she came to the throne, there was a test match being played. When her father died, it was the Chennai Test Match in 1953. And that was, I believe, the 320th test match to be played since the 1880s. Now, 70 years later in 2022, they have played 2,000 test matches. Her reign has overseen 80% of the test match cricket played over the course around the world, not just in the UK, not just in England, but around the world. 80% of the cricket played during her reign. That gives a magnified look at how substantial her reign really was. As I said the other day, it was a very, very sad, moving time on Thursday afternoon. But we moved very invisibly from one monarch to the next from Elizabeth to King Charles. 
and everything was very smooth and very organized and as i said the other day uh, queen elizabeth fingerprint was all over this transition plan and people were planning and writing speeches and preparing for this awful day to happen but now it has there's a quiet reflection and a good cheer of what has gone beforehand and all the people that have met her like 80% of the UK population has either seen her or met her or been involved with her over the years her sphere of influence is indeed massive the 70 year old reign was also a love story the Queen's marriage to Prince Philip underpinned the most successful and beloved monarchy the United Kingdom have ever known. But several days before the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh marked their 70th wedding anniversary with a formal dinner at Windsor Castle in November 2017, they attended a considerably smaller private gathering in London. At the age of 96, Philip had officially retired from public life in August and was dividing his time between Windsor Castle and Wood Farm at the Queen's Sandringham Estate in Norfolk. He had been expected at the dinner, but decided at the last minute to attend. The guest list was grand, including the King Harald V of Norway and Queen Sonia, King Wilhelm Alexander of the Netherlands and Queen Maxima. But the atmosphere was cosy and light-hearted. At the end of the dinner, the Queen got into her limousine, bound for Buckingham Palace, and the Duke climbed into his car, headed for Windsor Castle. Suddenly in a window in Philip's car, rolled down, and he shouted to his wife, Goodbye! She rolled down her window and responded with equal vigour, Goodbye! Such moments were seldom glimpsed by those outside the Queen and Duke's circle. The enduring public image was typified during her Diamond Jubilee weekend of 2012, when they stood on the deck of the Royal Barge for nearly four hours in the rain, then 86 and 90, braving chill and blustery winds. They showed fortitude as well as gratitude to the 1.2 million people along the banks of the Thames. It was everything that symbolised the royal couple. They were tough, stoic, duty-bound team. A beacon of continuity throughout decades of change, they set an example and solidified the traditions that helped to bind the nation. Their mutual devotion radiated a sense of unqualified commitment that had been so characteristic of every aspect of the reign, said the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, when they celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary in 2007. In the years after Philip's retirement, the Queen respected his wish to live amid the simplicity and informality of Wood Farm, where the staff dispensed with traditional livery required in the Queen's residences. He had friends over to shoot rabbits, visited neighbours for lunch, and relished the migration of birds to the marshes. However, when he needed a hip replacement surgery in April 2018, she insisted he recuperate for six weeks at Windsor Castle. Determined to attend the wedding of Prince Harry without using a stick, Philip regained his mobility in the long castle corridors. There's Philip careering around on crutches, the Queen exclaimed to a friend on the telephone one day. Quite far behind him, the nurse with her arms outstretched to catch him if he falls, but he's in the wrong place. On Harry and Meghan's wedding day, Philip walked unaided. The Queen visited her husband quietly at the wood farm and went to some lengths to ensure he had Enough stimulation was a bright and active mind as he coped through the diminishing vision and hearing. 
He didn't like doing puzzles or playing patience, but he enjoyed reading, so she had a device installed that would project a book onto the screen when he insisted on driving his horse-drawn carriages around the Sandringham estate. Often with a pretty neighbour, he had tutored in the sport. The Queen didn't object. It kept him physically active and offered an escape valve for his independent spirit and it appealed to her so many decades earlier. During the spring of 2020, that arrangement was upended with the coronavirus pandemic and the couple moved to Windsor Castle to self-isolate with a small bubble of staff. With all face-to-face or all duties suspended and contact with the other family members confined to video calls, the isolation gave them a rare opportunity to spend quality time together, dining with each other most evenings. It is here they spent her 94th birthday in April and his 99th in June, for which they released a photograph standing together in the sunshine in the quadrangle at Windsor Castle. If the Queen was a constant and calm, Philip was a spritz of vinegar with his irreverent and at times caustic comments. However, the Duke always said supporting the Queen was his primary purpose. As their consort, their marriage arguably held the royal family together through the divorces of three of their four children and the harrowing week after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales in 1997. For Britain and the Commonwealth, their remarkable partnership created one of the most successful beloved monarchies in history. Princess Elizabeth could have chosen from what her friend called Lady Anne Glenconnor a whole battalion of lively young men. Young aristocrats with vast wealth, however, at the age of 13, she fell in love when she spent an afternoon with the 18-year-old Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. He was a naval officer in training and a second cousin once removed. Descended from Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, he had little money, but was a handsome, confident, intelligent and energetic. Over the years, Elizabeth came to view Philip as a man of ideas, appealing complexity that would never be easy nor boring, but would share a commitment to duty and service. Despite a protective shell formed around the rootless childhood, Philip had a capacity for love which was waiting to be unlocked, said her mutual cousin Patricia Mountbatten. Elizabeth would not have been in such a difficult would not have been a difficult person to love, she said. He was a beautiful, amusing and gay. Her curly brown framed her porcelain complexion with cheeks that the photographer Cecil Beaton described as sugar pink, vivid blue eyes, a dazzling smile and infectious laugh. They were married on November the 20th, 1947 and spent their honeymoon on the Balmoral estate in Scotland. They only had a few years before she acceded to the throne at the age of 25. Their time in Malta from 1949 to 1951 when Philip was posted there with the Royal Navy was the closest Princess Elizabeth came to an ordinary existence, socialising with other officers' wives, going to the hair salon and even carrying her own cash, although shopkeepers noted she was slow in handling money. It was Philip who broke the news to his wife in 1952 that her father had died aged 56 and that she was queen. At first, Philip was viewed with suspicion by her old-style courtiers. He was excluded from the substance of the Queen's official life with no access to state papers. However, he carved out a role as a patron of nearly 800 charities, even as his wife came to rely on him for advice when making tough decisions. If her advisers brought a question to her on a matter outside her head of state role, she asked them first to find out what Philip thought. She looked at the big picture and asked for other options. Philip drilled down and got to the heart of the issue and with one of her advisors called a defence staff rigger. 
Early on, Philip saw the potential of the television, he encouraged the Queen to use it and even tutored on how to read from the autocue in her first televised speech in 1957. On their trips at home and abroad, they perfect, perfected a choreography of turns and cues that appeared effortless. He watched her intently during walkabouts to see if she required assistance. He would often spot people who could, couldn't see her, children in particular, and guide them to a better vantage point. When the Queen needed a boost, there was a humorous aside. Don't look so sad, sausage. While they were not physically demonstrated, they had a deep connection that intensified after the deaths of her mother and sister in 2002, when it became when he became her emotional touchstone. In the view of one of her senior advisors on the eve of the Diamond Jubilee, the advisor noticed that she still lights up when he walks into the room. She's become softer, lighter, happier. During his carriage driving competition, she would watch him do the obstacles and jump into a Land Rover to drive to the next set of challenges. Yet, they were not, according to the cousin Pamela Hicks, Sweet old Darby and Joan by any means, they were both very strong characters. The Queen went to unusual lengths to avoid confrontation with her prickly husband. Tony Parnell, for 30 years a foreman of her home at Sandringham, recalled a time when Philip's dressing room badly needed repainting. On Her Majesty's instructions, he said, We had to match the dirty paintwork so she wouldn't know. The most poignant moment of the Diamond Jubilee weekend occurred when Philip became ill with a bladder infection after the long Thames River pageant on the Sunday. The Queen walked down the aisle at St Paul's Cathedral that Tuesday was a throat-catching moment, the first time she'd ever appeared in a low in a key ceremonial event without Philip at her side. He was again at her side, however, for the final year of his life. An unintended silver lining of the pandemic, it seemed somehow fitting that the couple could enjoy a sunset honeymoon at Windsor Castle where Philip had first courted Lilibet during the Second World War. When he fell ill in early 2021, he was taken to hospital for a month. He was determined to return to his own bed in the castle. The Queen was always nearby during his last three weeks, as she ensured he was comfortable and could eat and sleep whenever he wished. The end came gently with his wife of 73 years comforting presence. Among her many happy memories was the 65th, or 66th wedding anniversary celebrated in typically low-key fashion at the home of the Queen's cousin, Lady Elizabeth Anson. For dinner, she used solar-powered Queen statuettes to hold plate the place cards for the guests, making the Queen's seat with a toy bobble-headed corgi. Surrounded by their oldest friends and extended family, the royal couple, then 87 and 92, laughed like newlyweds. Philip wasn't her only love. The Queen... And her corgis love me, love me, love my yapping, snapping, pampered dogs. The queen could be highly disciplined, was butter soft with her dogs, often impish. They had the run of the palace with food cooked by chefs and served in silver bowls. Oh, to be a corgi, Princess Diana called them a moving carpet. They knocked her butler, Paul Burrell, unconscious. And they snapped at courtiers with terrifying energy. But the queen, tough and disciplined with staff and family, was soft as butter with her pooches. Her corgis, along with her doggies, crossed between the Dachshund and the corgi, would have the run of the palace apartments, tucking into food cooked by her majesty's chefs and enjoying everlasting confidence of their mistress. Over the years, the queen owned more than 30 dogs, and corgis firmly established themselves as a symbol of her reign. In 2012, the trio of Monty, Willow and Holly even featured alongside her and Daniel Craig in the James Bond sketchy film for the London Olympics. 
the short, squat-legged, floppy-eared Welsh breed, has been beloved by the Queen ever since her father brought a male named Dookie in 1933 when she was six. Many corgis have a sweet if yappish temperament. Not so Dookie snapped at everything and everybody except Elizabeth and her mother. And at one politician left the royal presence bleeding from a bite of the hand. While the Queen turned 18, she re, uh, received her own corgi, Susan, a present from her father. Susan went everywhere with her, on, even on her honeymoon. As Philip found out, he had married the corgis as well as a girl. A role as a royal corgi is probably as good as it gets in canine terms. Their day would start with a walk with the footman. When the Queen woke, they would dash into her room, then accompany her to breakfast, where they jumped onto the table as she fed them toast and marmalade. In the afternoon, she put on a headscarf and take them for walks in the gardens of Buckingham Palace. One of the most important tasks of the palace footmen was to pamper the corgis. Their menu was pinned to the wall of the kitchens, and one of the chefs prepared their evening meal, freshly cooked steak, liver, rabbit and chicken, topped off with gravy and boiled cabbage. The food had to be fresh. There was a scandal in Balmoral a few years back when the Queen came to suspect the food in the royal dog bowls might have been frozen. The Queen often put their dinner into the polished silver bowls, forking in the pieces of dog biscuit. Then it came time for bed in the special corgi room, their wicker baskets raised to the cushion to keep them from drafts. Very occasionally they were allowed to sleep in the royal bedroom. At Christmas, the corgis all descended from Susan, received their own stockings, full of chocolate drops and toys. When they died, they were buried in the royal grounds with headstones. Holly died at Balmoral in 2016, Monty died in 2012, and in 2015 it's revealed that the Queen had decided to have no new corgis. Her passion was always shared by her family and staff. A footman was demoted for adding gin and whiskey to the dog's food. Burrell was dragged down a flight of steps while leading nine of them out of the palace. The Duke of Edinburgh complained about these bloody dogs. And Charles, he much prefers Labradors. The Queen has two corgis left that have uh, outlived her, that are now going to the Duke of York and former Duchess of York to look after and tether and try to train and control for their last years. So there's a beautiful article in the UK newspapers over the weekend. Her Majesty's inner circle offers a unique insight into a shy, funny woman who was superb at accents, loved jokes, and was a line of duty fan. Every one of us can instantly summon a mental image of Queen Elizabeth. It might be in ceremonial robes with auburn scepter, or waving from the balcony of Buckingham Palace during her platinum jubilee. She is perhaps the most familiar face in the world, yet the woman behind that wonderful smile was also one of the least known, an enigma, who regarded mystique as an essential part of the job. For Elizabeth II, the role of queen was one she gladly played, but it was her job rather than her identity. The real Elizabeth Windsor was a mother, a wife, a practical joker, a pianist, a mimic, a grandmother, and an animal lover who, just like the rest of us, like to unwind by watching Countdown and Line of Duty on the television. Some of those who knew the Queen as a boss or a friend shared their experience of the person who remained largely hidden from view for 70 years, providing a fascinating insight into the monarch, in public at least, never let the mask slip. Those who did catch a glimpse of the real Elizabeth often wished others could see her as well, as the people of Britain and the Commonwealth would surely have loved her even more. Samantha Cohen 
served the Queen for 17 years as her press secretary and then assistant private secretary. She stopped working for the royal household in 2019. She was really normal, the most normal, non-normal person I've ever met. It was remarkable how grounded she was. She wasn't fussy. She was so practical. She wasn't interested in material things. She recognised that being queen was a role and a job, so she managed to be ordinary and extraordinary at the same time. And that put people at ease. And she was incredibly humble. She was without ego, quite shy, really. The queen was a practical joker. Harold Macmillan, the third of her 15 prime ministers, once told the queen that it was a pity her mischievous sense of humour was always shielded from view. She replied that as a sovereign, she had to look serious, visit what people expected. Stories of the Queen's impish style abound from those who knew her best, and she would take to particular delight on those rare occasions when people failed to recognise her. Richard Griffin, a former protection officer, described an occasion when the Queen was walking her dogs on the Balmoral estate and came across a pair of American tourists at a picnic site. He said, there were two hikers coming towards us and the Queen would stop and say hello. It was clear from the moment they stopped that they hadn't recognised the Queen. After recounting what they had done on their holiday, the tourists asked Her Majesty, so where do you live? She replied, well, I live in, the, I live in London and I've got a holiday home just over the hills. I've been coming here ever since I was a little girl, over 80 years. One tourist asked, well, if you've been coming here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. Without missing a beat, the Queen replied, Well, I haven't, but Dick here meets her regularly. When Mr Griffin was asked, What is she like? He replied with a twinkle in his eye, Well, she can be quite very cantankerous at times, but she's got a great sense of humour. The Taurus asked if they could have their picture taken with Mr Griffin and asked his companion if she would do the honours. After the Queen took the picture of Mr Griffin with the Taurus, they swapped places and Mr Griffin took a picture of the Taurus with the Queen, he said. We never let on. And we waved goodbye and Her Majesty said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when she shows those pictures to their friends in America and hopefully somebody tells them who I am. They also, um, Brenda, Keith and the kids, behind closed doors, the Queen would sometimes refer to herself and members of her family by the nicknames given to them by private eye. Brenda, the Queen, Keith, Prince Philip, Brian, Charles, Yvonne, Princess Margaret, and she was self-deprecating to a fault. As she watched footage of the wedding of the then Prince of Wales and Princess Diana, she turned to her husband, Oh, Philip, do look, I've got my Miss Piggy face on. She also had a stock answer used on more than one occasion if somebody's mobile phone rang while they were talking to the Queen. You'd better answer that, it might be somebody important. The Queen took great pleasure in catching out members of the public, often as a result of her determination to do things for herself rather than have others and everything done for her by her servants. A member of staff in the household goods department of the London department store, Peter Jones, took a call from the customer wanting to buy a picnic basket or two. Would you send it round on account, please? Asked the customer, giving the addresses Buckingham Palace. Inquiring to whom it should be addressed, the shop worker was told, the Queen, thank you, before the line went dead. Assuming it was a practical joke, the, the store phoned the palace and was told, oh, she's very naughty. We are meant to do things like that for her. So Alan Tommy Lachelle, the Queen's first private secretary, and a man so memorably brought to life by Pip Torrens in The Crown, noticed her healthy sense of fun, which came out when she was off duty. In 1957, when Prince Philip was aboard Britannia for its final voyage to Australia, he grew a beard, 
which had a distinct ginger tinge, much to the Queen's amusement. She flew out to Lisbon to join him, and when Philip got onto the aircraft to greet her, he found his wife all over the staff wearing fake ginger beards. Very few people outside her immediate family had the pleasure of experiencing one of the Queen's many hidden talents as a mimic. Not only did she like to take off politicians, including Neil Kinnock and Boris Yeltsin, she also had a repertoire of regional accents. The story of Michael Fagan, the intruder, got into her bedroom at Buckingham Palace in 1982 is one of the worst ever breaches of royal security. Could not be retold by her without majestic impressions of the key player. She would copy the Middlesbrough accent of Elizabeth Andrew, the chambermaid, who was first to respond, saying, ooh, bloody hell, ma'am, what's he doing here? On another occasion, she realised that one of the crew filming her Christmas broadcast from Birmingham, she showed the technician a collection of silverware made in the city and explained all the pieces were in a broad, brummy accent, according to the courtier at the time. One of the great ironies of royal visits is those who arrange will suffer weeks of sleepless nights fretting over the details, yet members of the royal family who attend hundreds of well-drilled engagements each year enjoy nothing more when things go wrong. The Queen liked to recall the visit when she once made to Trinity College, Oxford, where the Lord Lieutenant of Oxfordshire fainted when his wife fainted, thinking he was dead. A college servant fell over and dropped a drinks tray in the commotion and what followed, the Queen told her host, We've had a wonderful lunch, bodies all over the place. Even such important ceremonies and occasions such as the Prince of Wales investiture in 1969 had its lighter moments for the Queen. She confided in Noel Coward that she had struggled not to giggle when she put the crown on Charles' head at the rehearsal because it was too big and it extinguished him like a candle snuffer. The Queen never fell into the trap of trying to be more interesting to the public or more light-hearted interactions with strangers. By keeping a steady, regal demeanour, she maintained a persona that people came to expect, and so the public was never disappointed. She knew that she had to try to be more energetic or funny, people would notice the days when she was tired or off form, and there'd be endless questions about what she was eating, what was eating her that day. Far better, even for somebody with such an unstuffy personality, to stick to the baseline that could always be attained, even on days when she might be feeling below par. Former Telegraph Royal Correspondent Anne Morrow noted that the Queen had to maintain some distance from the public, because if she warmly cuddled a child, it might cry, be sick on her dress or embarrass the parents and ruin an otherwise innocently happy afternoon. Gavin Ashenden, a former chaplain to the Queen, believes that part of her success lay in the fact that her official persona was almost indistinguishable from her private persona. He says, She had this artificial personality as Queen, and she lived in it without any tension because it was not far from who she was. She was able to put people at ease because she came across a jolly, nice, very kind person that was entirely genuine. In later years, of course, the Queen did start to show her hand most memorably at the opening of the London 2012 Olympics, when she joined Daniel Craig's James Bond on a mission to parachute into the stadium via a stunt double. Her appearance at the Paddington Bear at the Platinum Jubilee concert, tapping her teacup to Queen's We Will Rock You, and when Prince Harry enlisted her for a mic drop moment, some trash talk with President Obama to promote his Invictus Games. These moments play to her sense of theatre. There was a reception at Buckingham Palace before the London Olympics thrown by the Queen for members of the media, before the nation's greatest sporting event since 1966. 
As editors and journalists gathered in a picture room, they were gently heralded towards one end, where suddenly and without warning, a grand set of double doors swung open to reveal the Queen and Prince Philip, which electrified the room. It was a classic piece of stage management from a monarch who was acutely aware of her power to impress and newspaper editors, including those publications that were distinctly Republican, were reduced to nervy, bowing subjects as they were singled out by her for conversation. The Queen liked to make entrances to meetings, using some of the secret doors that are features of the palace and were clearly tickled by the reaction for those who granted an audience. Despite all of that, the Queen was by nature a shy woman, which perhaps was one of the reasons she was so attracted to the supremely confident and outgoing Prince Philip. Sally Osman, who served the Queen's Director of Communications for more than five years, said, because she was quite shy person, she put the cloak on when she went out and she had coping mechanisms like the handbag, which she didn't really need to carry out. It was part of her armour. The Queen even tried to veto the live broadcast of her coronation because she was petrified she'd make a mistake. Her shyness manifested itself in a lifelong hatred of confrontation. She would do anything to avoid confrontation, said one former aide. She was particularly bad at tackling difficult conversations with her children, is why Prince Philip always had to be the family disciplinarian. At times, it could be a serious hindrance. Those who were on the staff at the time say the Queen's aversion to confrontation was the reason she failed to veto one of the most cringeworthy episodes of her reign, the Grand Knockout Tournament, better known as the Royal Knockout. The brainchild of her youngest son, Prince Edward, the televised event in 1987 involved the Princess Royal, Duke and Duchess of York and Edward dressing up as medieval costumes to captain celebrity teams in a format of a slapstick game show called It's a Knockout. The Queen had been strongly advised to refuse permission for the event, which heavily promoted sponsors like Asda and McDonald's. The Prince and Princess of Wales flatly refused to have anything to do with it, but the Queen could not bear to crush the tigerish Edward's madcap plans. The result was a collective loss of dignity, like that which the royal family's never seen. The Queen was also, also pulled punches when she was supposed to deliver bad news to another of her sons, Prince Andrew. In 2011, when his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein came to the fore, the government decided to strip him of the role of UK roving trade ambassador. The Queen was given the task of telling him. Andrew went to a meeting with the Queen. When he came out of the meeting, it was obvious he still thought he was a trade ambassador. She hadn't told him. The Queen had tremendous calmness under fire. This inability to stand up to members of her own family is all more surprising in the context of the Queen's immense personal courage. She would frequently ignore advice to stay away from countries that were considered dangerous, was sanguine in the threat of assassination by terrorist groups and showed calmness under fire that would have been an envy of many a soldier. In 1981, when a 17-year-old gunman fired six times at her from the crowd before trooping in the colour, the bullets were blank, something the Queen only found out later. The monarch kept her horse under control, patted and insisted on carrying on with the ceremony. When the concrete block was dropped on her car from a tower block in Belfast, others expressed shock, but the Queen simply said, it's a strong car. Her cousin Margaret Rose recalled a comment made to her by the Queen when they were riding out together six months after the murder of Earl Mountbatten by an IRA bomb in 1979. The Queen matter-of-factly said, I've been informed that the IRA have a new sort of sniper sight that sees through the mist when carried on riding, moving on to the next topic. Fatalistic, often possibility of assassination, whenever she was warned by security risk, she would say, if somebody really wants to get to me, it's too easy. She's also told a friend, I'm not afraid of being killed, I just don't want to be maimed. Her father, George VI, 
refused to evacuate from London during the Second World War, would not have been surprised. Before he was king, when Elizabeth was less than 10 years old, he compared her to Queen Victoria, saying from the very first moment of talking, she showed so much character that it was possible not to wonder whether history would not repeat itself. That character was manifested in part by a steely determination, including in her choice of husband, which whom she was in love rather than supposing more suitable men placed above him in the list compiled by her mother. Her childhood was materially privileged but emotionally challenging. When she was eight months old, her parents went to Australia and did not return for six months. And for much of her childhood, she was reliant on her nursemaid and nanny Margaret Bobo MacDonald, a woman who became so important to the Queen that she remained by her side for 67 years. It is difficult to separate such an institutionalised childhood from the Queen's difficulty in expressing emotion in later life. Her family would say, It's always hard to tell with Lilibet whether she is happy or not. Is it one of her chin or chinless days? On a chinless day, she would tuck into her chin and look disgruntled. There was never any need to feign enthusiasm when it came to horses or dogs. The first newspaper the Queen read every morning was the Racing Post. She also read the Telegraph and the Financial Times to check on her investments. Princess Anne once divulged that the only person who could always be, uh, be sure of being put straight through to the Queen, wherever they telephoned one, was Lord Porsche Carnarvon, because a call from him meant there would be news about her horses. It was at the races that the Queen would often come closest to throwing off a mask altogether, jumping up and down with excitement as her horses came down the finishing straight. In her spare time, she would make private visits to Normandy to visit studs, and few things gave her as much pleasure as success on the race course. She was the leading owner in 1954 and 1957, won every classic flat race except the Derby, some of them several times. The Queen also had a love of corgis well known. She bred Labradors as well at the stud at Sandringham, taking a hands-on approach to their care to the point of removing their fleas herself. For several years, she competed in the gun dog trials at Sandringham Balmoral and in shoots she would work four dogs at a time, using two cocker spaniels to sweep down, down birds on the nearer the ground and two Labradors to carry out longer distance pickups using the whistle. A former gamekeeper, Bill Meldrum, credited her with the first retrieve I've ever seen guiding a Labrador to a grouse that had fallen 800 yards away on the other side of the river. She would even indulge her dogs by feeding them tidbits from the table. She liked her dogs under the table at lunches. She hosted, ex uh, helped put guests at ease. Her love of animals extended to pigeons. Carrying a family tradition started by Edward VII, she would keep racing birds at the loft in Norfolk. She did not care for cats, though. As a child, she dreamed of living in the countryside, surrounded by horses and dogs. Her annual summer stay at Balmoral, her favourite time of year, was the closest she's got to that. One former courtier said, one of, the most, one of the first things you notice was how different she was when she was at Balmoral or Sandringham, compared when she was at Buckingham Palace. She didn't have to be the queen there. You'd look out of the window and she would walk past with her dogs and wave. It was Balmoral with its Gillies balls, Scottish dancing and barbecues that the queen was at her most relaxed. She once said it's rather nice to hibernate there. The queen insisted on doing her own washing up after Prince Philip's legendary barbecues at the estate and Margaret Thatcher was so taken aback to see him doing it barehanded that she sent some marigold gloves in the post. Holidays at Balmoral, while never worked three, gave the Queen time to indulge in some of her personal pleasures. She loved TV shows, particularly Countdown and Pointless, and was partial to thrillers, including Line of Duty. She had watched MasterChef with Prince Philip when he was still alive. 
though racing would always be a preference during the flat season. Comedies like Morkin and Wise, Yes Minister, The Two Ronnies were favourites, and she ploughed through thrillers by Dick Francis and Hammond Innes. There'd usually be a jigsaw on the go at Balmoral or Sandringham. Ballet was preferred to opera apart from Gilbert and Sullivan. In younger life, she liked to play the piano, a good standard. She was fluent in French. Official papers sent over from Canada would sometimes be in French and would have no need to be translated. Despite her taste for gin and debonair, the Queen drank only in moderation and was disciplined in her eating habits to maintain her weight and health. Like most of the other members of the royal family, she ate very quickly. Etiquette dictated that as soon as the Queen was finished eating, all the guest plates would be cleared, meaning slower eaters were called out mid-meal. Her favourite meal was afternoon tea. Prince Charles once said everything stops the tea and that her family was addicted to it. The Queen would brew the tea, allowing one spoonful per person and three minutes to brew for small leaf tea and six for larger leaf tea. Sandwiches and cake would be served even in mid-flight, which gave the Queen the stamina to keep going on busier days. Her regime clearly worked. Her only recurring health problem was uh, sinusitis, and she also had the stamina of an ox. Margaret Thatcher was among those who struggled to keep up at work at times. When the then Prime Minister felt faint on a hot, stuffy diplomatic reception and had to sit down, the Queen breezed past her and said, Oh, look, she's keeled over again. Understandably, the Queen often craved a taste of normality away from the caged existence. She would like to drive her own car and like to drive fast on private roads, even in old age. She would pop into tea shops near Balmoral and hope she wasn't would not be recognised. Her small stature often caught people out. She was only five foot four and enjoyed rare chances she had to go to the shops. Mrs. Cohen recalls, we stopped off in Singapore to refuel on the way back from Australia in 2002. She liked to buy silk there, which merchants would bring to her private suite. But on occasion, for the first time ever, she decided she would go shopping in the duty-free at Shanghai Airport. We went to stall and people who own owned it didn't recognize her so they started bartering with her hello lady she was looking at me and laughing and saying what do i say she thought it was absolutely brilliant it was such a fun thing mrs cohen would often gl- uh, catch glimpses of the wife and mother who em- employed her she says when we were going through the red boxes she would sometimes say are we nearly finished because i've got to give philip his lunch she would also do all the bedroom plans when people came to say at Standingham. she cared about all of those things but she was a wife and mother the Queen was not incapable of losing her temper, though, with her husband. During a six-month tour of Australia, soon after the coronation, a local camera crew filmed the Queen hurling tennis shoes and a tennis racket at Prince Philip outside the chalet before dragging him back inside. The crew agreed to hand over the footage, and the Queen, according to the filmmaker, later appeared in a picture of calmness. I'm sorry for that little interlude, but you know it happens in every marriage. Every Prime Minister, Sir Douglas Home suggested that if she was not the Queen, she might have been head of Chatham House. He saw at first the immense intellect, which she wore so lightly, or the jockey club, and would have been undoubtedly very happy doing so. The Queen had tremendous faith, and it might have been the reason she was so forgiving, despite her personal ire over the behaviour of Edward VIII, then the Duke of Windsor, she tried to heal the rift with him by going to see him in Paris, during an official visit in 1972, nine days before his death, and agreed that he and Wallace Simpson could be buried together at Frogmore House. She also hosted Mrs. Simpson at Buckingham Palace after the Duke died. On the Golden Jubilee, 
regional tour, she was surprised at how many people had turned out to see her in Berkshire and Buckinghamshire early one morning. Are these crowds really here for me? They were. There will be nothing compared with the crowds that will gather to express the nation's gratitude, respect and affection for the longest reigning monarch. We have to remember at this time that the Queen, for all the duty and service to this nation, she was also a mother. And you can see the tears from her children, whether it's Princess Anne driving in the hearse that's transporting the Queen from Balmoral to Holyrood House, to Prince Charles welling up at the end of his speech, to Prince Andrew, Prince Edward, Sophie Wessex, with great sombre mood and tearful. They'll miss her as a mother, as a granny. Mothers set us on the right track, give us the direction we need for our lives. And at times of hardship, give us a warming, comforting hug. Time of silence and introspection, it gives us a chance to think about our mothers and our family and how important they are, and the importance of enjoying them, and just letting them know that you love them. I want to finish today this edition of Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, Elizabeth the Great, Part 2, with an extract from a private poem by Ted Hughes, who was a close friend of the Queen Mother. During a royal Christmas gathering in 1996, the Prince of Wales read out a poem, to the Queen Mother, who had privately written for the, her by Ted Hughes, the much-loved poet laureate. Its existence was revealed last decade when a book of the Queen Mother's correspondence included a brief mention of it in a thank-you letter to the poet in February 1997. No lines from it have ever been published until the last week. The full poem has come to light after Carol Hughes, the poet's widow, lent his handwritten draft copy to a small volunteer-run museum on Dartmoor which asked people for royal memorabilia to feature in the Jubilee celebrations. She donated a photograph of Hughes with the Queen Mother on the Balmoral Estate, taken five months before his death in October 1998. The poet and the royal matriarch struck up a close friendship during his laureateship. Bonding over the shared love of fishing the outdoors, the poem which runs for 44 lines across five stanzas recalls a day when Hughes joined the Queen Mother and Charles at the Sandringham Flower Show before a picnic in the woods with some corgis. Hughes has titled the poem A Day at Sandringham Flower Show, and throughout the draft crosses his errors out, such as referring to the Queen Mother as a Royal Highness, with small sketches and bouquets. The London Times uh, gave the first exclusive look at the poem, um, so I'm going to give you an extract. The full poem has not been published yet, but I thought this is absolutely p- uh, perfect for this time. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem and uh, gives a snapshot of uh, the Queen, the Queen Mother in this case, and uh, the times they enjoyed at Sandringham. Beautiful, peaceful times where they could be themselves. Perfect gravel, a perfect sky. Queen Marb's coach, not half so spry. Light as a flower and a butterfly, drawn by the powerful, elegant forces of two tall and pearly horses, on wheels that flicker as airily, as fountains spray seem to fly, the prince and his granny go floating by.